for your word. Lord, we are so thankful for your word and for the way that it strengthens us, the way that it guides us, the way that it teaches us, Lord, to be more and more like your son, Jesus Christ. The way, Lord, that it is modeling for us what Christianity looks like and what the gospel ministry is seeking to accomplish. And Lord, we here as your church want to place ourselves under your word this morning to give you freedom to do what you want to do in us. And Lord, what we know not would you teach us, what we are not, Lord, would you make us, and what we have not, Lord, would you give us. And Lord, would you use me simply as your messenger to proclaim your truth, and Lord, that your gospel would go forward and that your church would be strengthened to be what it's called to be. We ask in your name, amen. Thank you, you may be seated. I want to begin this morning with a question. What is hope? What is hope? In today's culture, the word hope is used to represent wishful thinking. I hope that the weather changes so I can go play golf. I hope that the Warriors will make it to the playoffs. I hope that the line at In-N-Out won't be long today after church. It's what a child is asked to do just before they blow out the candles on a birthday cake. We say, make a wish. And the child makes a wish and hopes it will come true. So as one dictionary defines it, hope, is a feeling of expectation and desire for a certain thing to happen. I hope that I can get off from work early today. I hope my teacher doesn't give me any homework this weekend so I can watch the Super Bowl. I hope that my car will start so I can get to church on time. But friends, biblical hope is not mere wishful thinking. You see, in the Old Testament, the word for hope means to trust and wait expectantly. I want to draw your attention to Jeremiah chapter 14 and verse 22, and this is what we read. Are there any among the false gods of the nations that can bring rain? Or can the heavens give showers? Are you not he, O Lord our God? We set our hope on you, for you do all these things. You see, the prophet here is not fearful. He's not wondering if God will come through or not. Instead, Jeremiah confidently expects God to fulfill his promises to Israel. Therefore, hope is trusting fully in God, in his wisdom, in his promises. And then as we turn our attention to the New Testament, the word hope is focused on God who brings salvation to all who believe through his son, Jesus Christ. And I want to draw your attention to 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, where Paul says, For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people. See, unlike the dead idols that men worship, our God is the living God. 
And unlike the impotent gods mankind makes and worships, our God is truly the Savior of all people, and he does that through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. So unlike the child blowing out candles on her birthday cake and making a wish, biblical hope is not vain. It's not fanciful thinking. Instead, hope rests in the sure and confident expectation that God who sent Jesus Christ to pay the penalty for our sins will meet all our needs, both in in the present and for all eternity. Friends, that's good stuff. It is putting all your eggs in Christ's basket and his alone. Hope is a a box full of God's promises that he guarantees that he will fulfill. You see, it is this hope found only in Christ that Paul has been traveling all across the Mediterranean and preaching. It is this hope that set him free and sent him on this commission to proclaim Jesus and the kingdom of God. And even here at the end of the book of Acts, We find Paul directing his Jewish audience to the hope that can only be found in Christ Jesus. And he uses an expression that's only found here in the book of Acts and in the book of Jeremiah to once again appeal to his Jewish audience. He describes Jesus and all that he has accomplished as the hope of Israel. The hope of Israel. Now, what Paul ultimately preaches in this passage, and that Luke, the author of Acts, wants us to see as the punchline of both this passage and the book of Acts is that Jesus, the hope of Israel, is the hope of the world. Let me say that again. Luke is arguing here throughout the book of Acts And all of the the stories, all of the events showing us that Jesus, the Messiah, is the hope of Israel. But he's also the hope of the world. The first use of this expression, the hope of Israel, is found in the book of Jeremiah. And Jeremiah is recording the sarcastic response of the Jews who've rejected God. This is what they say. Jeremiah chapter 14, verse 8. Oh, you hope of Israel, it's Savior in times of trouble. Why should you be like a stranger in the land, like a traveler who turns aside to tarry for a night? They accused him of being like a stranger in the land, though they were the ones who had made themselves strangers to him. They compared him to a traveler passing through who had no intimate relationship with the people of the land. But it was they who had broken covenant with him and were not interested in him. Then Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 13, the prophet tells us what happens to Israel when she rejects the hope of Israel. Oh, Lord, the hope of Israel. All who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth, for they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. 
Now, friends, when when Christ comes to Israel, they ultimately reject him, just like John accounts for. He came to his own, and his people, the Jews, did not receive him, he says. And Paul goes throughout the Mediterranean preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And who is it ultimately that opposes him time and time again? It's the Jews. They, they chase Paul out of town. They have him in prison. They, they beat him and leave him for dead. And certainly, a large number of Jews do believe. But the emphasis here is not so much the individual as it is the religious institution of, of Judaism and the nation of Israel that is standing in a position of rebellion against God. Let me just pause and say this, friend. Whatever your eschatology is, the nation of Israel right now stands in rebellion against God. You might have a fanciful thought about Israel. You might think great things of Israel, but as a nation and as a people group, they are standing in rebellion against God. And that's what we have here. So now at the end of the book of Acts... Luke, who's writing to Theophilus, a Gentile believer, he wants us to see that Jesus, the hope of Israel, is the hope of the world. And in so doing, Luke is showing through Paul's words that a definite and a dramatic shift has taken place. The exclusivity of Israel has come to an end And that the hope of Israel is now the hope of the world. And what we see, that there's a movement taking place in our passage. There's a paradigm shift going on. It's a final attempt by Paul to preach the same message about the hope of Israel so that they would embrace him as their Savior. And as we study this passage, it's pleading with us to embrace Israel. Jesus as our hope. Who Jesus is and what he has done is not some wishful thinking, friends. But he is the one we trust completely and long for expectantly. Now our passage naturally unfolds into four hope-driven sections. Let me give them to you briefly so that you can track with me. Hope defended. Paul's going to defend this hope of Israel. Hope proclaimed. Hope rejected. And then ultimately we're going to find that hope remains. Hope defended, proclaimed, rejected, and hope remains. And before we get into this passage, I just want you to note If I quote from verse 29, it'll be kind of hard because it's not there. So if you're like, how come there's no, it's it's not in the text. It was added, it was included, but it was taken out because it's not in the best text that we have, just so you know that. Hope defended, and here we're going to see Paul's defense intrigues the Jews. Paul's just arrived in Rome after about four months of travel. 
What was supposed to be just maybe a five-week trip has turned into four months of travel. If you remember, three weeks facing storm at sea, which ultimately leads in shipwreck. And then three months stranded on the island of Malta for the winter, where he and his friends are surprisingly welcomed and treated with kindness and hospitality. And by God's grace, the Lord uses Paul, even in that time of waiting, to minister to hurting people and to cure them of their, uh, their ailments. And then we have this final three weeks of journeying from Malta to, Jerusalem, to, to Rome. And you remember, as he gets off the boat in Puteoli, there's still another 150 miles of walking that needs to take place for him to get to Rome. And, and the Jews in Rome realize that he's coming, hear about him coming, they come to join him. Remember, there's this wonderful time of refreshment and fellowship going on. And so we, we begin our text here in verse 17, after three days. So in other words, he came to Rome, he's getting settled, he's getting a place to stay, and we're told after three days he called together the local leaders of the Jews, and when they had gathered, he said to them, so he's gathering the leaders of the Jews. In, in Rome, there were a number of synagogues, and the leaders of those synagogues are the ones that he's, he's inviting to come. He wants to speak to them. And the reason he wants to speak to them is because he wants to get ahead of whatever they may be thinking or whatever may they, they may have found out about him back in Jerusalem. He wants to stop any kind of gossip or misinformation. And so what does he do? Well, he calls a meeting so he can have face-to-face -face encounter with them. And so they'll have understanding of exactly where he stands and truly what has happened. So now Paul gives his defense. When the Jewish leaders arrive, Paul begins his defense of what happened to him and, and why he is there. And what we're going to find here are three main answers or points of his defense followed by the root cause of his imprisonment. Notice, first of all, point number one. I have done nothing against Israel. He says, I, I want to be very clear. Charges were brought against me in Jerusalem from the Jews, but when they came to actually question me. They found out that there was no evidence. They just had accusations. There was no proof that these things were true. So I'm not guilty of any offense against Israel or its religion. Secondly, I've done nothing against Rome. And this is one of the things that they tried to do. You're an insurrectionist. You're a person who's stirring up trouble. Therefore, Rome is going to have to deal with you. But as he's brought to the leaders, the Roman officials there in Jerusalem, Felix and Festus, and even King Agrippa, who was Jewish, they found nothing that was a crime against Rome. In fact, they wanted to set him free. And they would have set him free if it were not for the fact that he had appealed to Caesar, but also because of their fear of the Jews. Third, I have done nothing against you. Now, this is kind of a technical statement because what was common, it's common today, is if someone brings a certain a suit against you, you have the right to bring a countersuit. Sometimes those are done legitimately, and sometimes those are done in spite. And Paul is saying to these Jews here, I have done nothing against you, right? Specifically, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. 
He's not accusing Israel and its religion of anything. So Paul says, I didn't do that. Not against Israel, not against Rome. I haven't done anything against you. But here's the root cause. I'm here because of the hope of Israel. And notice what it says, verse 20. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. This is what got me into this place. It's the hope of Israel. And you're like, that's not a great hope to end up in chains. Well, he's talking about something that is critically important here. He's saying the reason I'm here in Rome and the reason I'm in chains is because of this hope of Israel. Well, certainly, um, he's pointing to the fact that Jesus is the hope of Israel. that He's the Messiah. But the mark or the evidence or the capstone of that hope is found in the resurrection. And what Paul is saying is that wherever I want, went proclaiming the good news of the gospel, what offended the Jews was not my talk about Jesus healing people and Jesus teaching and the content of his sermons. What offended them was the resurrection. That's what caused them to get angry. That's what caused them to turn against him. So let's go back in Acts and let's see just briefly here how Paul develops this theme of the hope of Israel connected to the resurrection. First of all, go back to his defense before the council. And this is found in chapter 23 and verse 6. If you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to follow along. We're going to be in the, close, in the same kind of area, chapter 23 and verse 6. And listen to what happens here as he's speaking. He's, he's defending himself now. Brothers, I'm a Pharisee, a son of the Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. It's pretty clear, isn't it? And then move over to chapter 24. Now he's making his defense before the the Roman governor, Felix, and he says this, verse 14 of 24, but this I confess to you that according to the way which they call a sect, that's what they understood Christianity to be, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. Right? This hope and a resurrection. And then when he's making his defense in chapter 26 before Festus, and of course Agrippa is there too, verse 6, And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by by any of you that God raises the dead? See, this is not a, a new thing. This has been his argument. Our hope is in Christ, and the evidence of that hope is the resurrection. So I'm here because of the hope of Israel. And when Paul goes, when Paul speaks about the hope of Israel, he's referring to the resurrection of Christ. 
That's what's landed me in these chains. Now the question is, how do these Jewish leaders respond? Well, they gather with Paul, and they say to Paul, we've not received any letters from Jerusalem. We really have no idea of what you're talking about. No Jewish brothers traveling from Jerusalem have have come or said anything badly about you. We don't know anything really about you. That's likely because the Jews in Jerusalem realized that they had no grounds for this accusation. And the fact that he was going to to Caesar, it's like, okay, well, we're not going to further this anymore. He's going to go before Caesar. But notice what they say. Verse 22, but we desire to hear from you what your views are. For with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. We haven't heard anything spoken against you, but we've heard a lot spoken against the sect, the way, which is, of course, Christianity. So we want to hear more about the sect. We want to hear your views. And Paul is like, bring it on, right? I mean, he's like ready to go. Right? What a great opportunity for Paul to explain to them the hope of Israel. My friends, it's a reminder that part of evangelism or part of interacting with people who are unbelievers is their, either their ignorance or their distorted understanding of who Jesus Christ actually is and what Christianity is all about. Because they have many different ideas that they've picked up along the way. Truth be told, they likely lump true Christianity with things like Catholicism, the Orthodox Church, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witness. Why? Because they all kind of talk about Jesus, and they're all offshoots, so to speak, of true Christianity. Therefore, part of our job is to make a distinction about who Jesus is and what he has done and what he desires for us by pointing them to the Scriptures, not to the teaching of our church, but to the Scriptures. In fact, any teaching that we have in our church should flow out of the Scriptures. So this is hope defended. Now we move into hope proclaimed, because what happens now is a day comes when the Jews gather with Paul where he's staying, and apparently the word got out because we're told there there was a lot more people present. There was a great number, it says. And here we see Paul proclaim Christ as a faithful witness. A faithful witness here. This was Paul's pattern, friends, as he went around preaching. Notice what it says here. From morning till evening he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. So Paul's pattern, if you remember, was to go into the synagogues, and to reason with them from the Scripture, to explain the Scripture, to reason, to persuade, and to show them that Christ is the fulfillment of their Old Testament Scriptures. Of course, for them, it was just the Scriptures. And friends, this is a defining moment in the book of Acts because it it gets to the heart of Luke's reason for writing the book. This is Paul's moment to preach the gospel again before a Jewish audience. Now certainly in this time of preaching, there was time for some dialogue or some Q&A, but primarily it's Paul 
teaching them from the Scriptures. But I want you to notice something here. First of all, I want you to notice the length of his sermon from morning until evening. You think you got it bad. I would love to hear that sermon. Have some, something to drink and some chips or something like that, but I, I would love to, to hear that sermon, to take it all in. Secondly, notice the text for his sermon from cover to cover. We heard that already this morning, didn't we? The law of Moses and the prophets. That's just another way of saying from the whole of Scripture. Third, notice the point of the sermon. Jesus and the kingdom of God. And friends, this is very much like what Jesus did as he encountered these disciples. He was incognito. They didn't know who he was. They're on the road to Emmaus. And as Jesus is walking with these two unnamed disciples, this is what he says, Luke chapter 24. I want to invite you to actually look at this. This is really important. This is really a place that you should kind of put a little star or note because it reveals so much about how we approach the Word of God. So he's saying to these disciples, verse 25 of Luke 24, and he said to them, Oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should, what? Suffer these things and enter into glory. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. That's another sermon I would like to hear. And then a day or so so later, when Jesus had revealed himself to the disciples, he says in verse 44 of Luke 24, and then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, these are expressions talking about the totality of the scriptures, must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer on the third day and rise, suffer and on the third day uh, rise from the dead and that repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning in Jerusalem. So what Paul is doing here is he's doing something very similar to what Jesus did with his disciples. So what might Paul have revealed to the Jews gathered at his residence? Now, this was likely a sermon that he had preached many times. I'm sure that Luke and Aristarchus, who were with him, probably thought, okay, here he goes. Here's that sermon again. We're going to sit back and we're going to enjoy it one more time. And he probably began by walking them through the storyline of Scripture with specific emphasis on Jesus and the kingdom of God. And how the scriptures pointed to Jesus being the Christ. But I want to kind of break some things down. This is a, a, a kind of a short list. Not everything's up here. But it might help you to think through the kinds of things that he did along the way. He probably took them to pictures of Jesus in their scriptures. These would be motifs that point to Christ. Where Jesus is seen as the Passover lamb, the high priest, the captain, the kinsman redeemer, the prophet, the king, the shepherd, the prince of peace, the redeemer, the faithful husband, the tabernacle, the mediator. He imagined just him walking through all of that. 
And that's just a short list. There's many others. And then there's the prophecies or the promises of Jesus. Is Israel's hope Jesus would be born of a virgin, would be born in Bethlehem, would be the true word of God, a prophet greater than Moses. He would be rejected by his people, betrayed by his own. He would be pierced for our transgressions. He would rise on the third day. All prophecies and promises about this Messiah. And then he would talk about the presence of Jesus. See, this Messiah wasn't just someone who was future. This Messiah was someone who was actually with them. He's the I am in whom Abraham rejoiced. He's the ark in the flood. He's the redeemer who brought Israel out of Egypt. He's the rock that led and satisfied Israel in the wilderness. He's the cloud by day. He's the fire by night. Again, we could go on and on showing Jesus in the Old Testament. And this is what Paul is doing during these 12 hours, walking them through these passages, showing them Christ. Now, some of you might remember the Verizon commercials that ran from about 2002 to 2009. There's a, a techie engineer type guy. It's pictured going to all sorts of places asking the question, can you hear me now? Good. He'd show up on top of a mountain, on the beach, in a forest, in a lake, under the ground, under a bridge, in a swamp, in an office complex, in the desert, popping out of a manhole saying, can you hear me now? Good. Can you hear me now? Good. And friends, that's very similar to what Paul is doing on this day. From morning to evening, Paul is revealing Christ from the whole of scriptures. And at each point, he's saying to the Jews, can you see him now? Can you hear him now? Will you embrace him now? And so each time Paul took them to a passage in the scriptures, they're confronted with a picture, a promise, a prophecy, or something about the presence of Christ. And each passage, each explanation, every connection was to help them see that the hope of Israel, the Messiah, is the crucified and resurrected Jesus. So what Paul is saying here, and get this, this is the argument he's making. I have been under attack for simply being a loyal Jew who is faithful to the scriptures that are pointing to the Messiah of Israel that they long for. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he summarizes it. For our sakes, he, that's God, made him, that's Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, that's Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. Now friends, this theme of Jesus and the kingdom wraps the book of Acts and serves as a sort of top and tail to this book. Go back to chapter one if you would. I just want you to see this. Because sometimes we, we, we miss these things. This, this theme is throughout this book, but it starts here in chapter one even as, as it's being introduced. Verse 3, he, that's Jesus, presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about what? The kingdom 
of God. And what is he doing at the end of this book? Here's Paul preaching about Jesus, his resurrection, and the kingdom of God. How do they respond? What do they say? What do they do? do? It's a divided response, isn't it? There's evidence of belief. Some were convinced. And there's evidence of unbelief. Now, is this convincing evidence of genuine salvation? Could be. But certainly there is this presence of unbelief. Now, this is, friends, is consistent with what Simeon predicted about Jesus after his birth. He said in Luke chapter 2 and verse 34, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. In other words, there's going to be conflict in Israel because of this child. So in Luke, in Luke's gospel, the coming of Jesus will cause division in Israel. And in Acts, it is the preaching about Jesus that will cause division among the Jews. So it's not surprising that the Jews gathered at Paul's residence, listening to him proclaim Jesus and the kingdom of God would be divided. Friends, so many of you have attended church for a long time. You've come week after week. You've heard the pastor, whoever it might be, open the word of God and proclaim Christ from the Old and the New Testaments. That is the heartbeat of every true and faithful pastor to show Jesus is our only hope. And you may have heard it over and over and over again, and it might be so familiar to you that you could even tell the stories of the Bible and some principles from it. But the question here is this, have, has the preaching of Christ convinced you that your greatest problem is your sin? And that your greatest hope is Jesus. You can tell me about Joseph all you want. Jonah. Moses. Abraham. The stories in the Gospels. You can tell the stories. You can go and teach in Sunday school stories to kids. But has it gripped you? Every time Christ is presented to you, what the Holy Spirit is saying to you is, can you hear me now? Can you hear me now? Hope is defended. Hope is proclaimed. But now hope is rejected because Paul's statement divides them. He's writing this a little differently, kind of looking back after they leave, but this is what caused the division. So what we see is that some were convinced and others did not believe, and what Luke tells us next is that when the large gathering of Jews departed, they were divided. But what was it that caused the division? It was the statement that Paul made, which concluded him pressing home a quotation from Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. Now, if you remember, God said, who will go for me? 
And Isaiah says, I'll go, and God gives him a commission, and he says, oh, by the way, when you go, they won't listen. Their hearts will be hardened. They won't see. So he was preaching the message of God to a people who would reject that message. Verse 25, and disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. Now you can just imagine Paul having preached 12 hours and seeing the way the Jewish audience was responding to all that was, he was teaching from the Scriptures, saying something like this. In conclusion, I want to point you to what Isaiah the prophet says. And you can just imagine Luke and Aristarchus, who've heard this many times before, looking at each other as Paul makes that statement because they know what is coming. The gathering has been cordial so far, listening and asking good clarifying questions, but they know that Paul cannot resist. He's about to poke the Jews in the eye. And Paul says the Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear but never understand. And you will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull and with their ears they can barely hear and their eyes they have closed lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Now friends, when God describes you as this people, you better look out. What's happening here is this, friends. A door is emphatically being shut on Israel. What is Paul saying to them? What the Holy Spirit is saying in Isaiah chapter 6 is talking about you. In Isaiah, it's Israel's heart, their, their mind, and their eyes are closed to the proclamation of God coming through his prophet. Israel's problem is a dull heart. Literally, their heart has grown fat. It's thick. It's so full, it's unresponsive. Nothing can penetrate it. Israel's ears can barely hear. Israel's eyes have been closed. So the, the, the heart, the ears and the eyes have no capacity to respond to God. They can't turn to God because of their dullness. And he's saying, this is you, poke, poke. Poke, 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 poke. And what the Holy Spirit, that's God, says about you is being fulfilled right now. The Holy Spirit is right. Your hearts are fat. You have no room for the Messiah. Your ears are closed. You can't hear the truth. Your eyes are shut. You can't see what is revealed in Scripture, what's right in front of you. And again, John captures it well when he says, Jesus came to his own and his own people did not receive him. I share with you about my pastor growing up. I came to the Lord when I was 16 and I, the pastor in that church, his name was Paul Vanman. And I remember when he would preach, uh, he was a very boisterous, loud preacher. 
He would say, hey, church family, are you listening? And I remember he came to the school that I was going to in college, and we had chapel sessions, and about 7,000 people are gathered in this chapel, and he is preaching, and he stops, and he says, students, are you listening to me? And he'd say, faculty, are you listening? You in the balcony, are you listening? You in the back row, are you listening? You in the front row, are you listening? By that time, everyone's listening. (laughs) Friends, you might be able to say, I can hear you now, but the question is, are you listening? Here's the truth. You've grown up with all your life. You've heard it. Oh, but friends, are you listening? Are you listening? Is your heart dull toward God? Have your ears learned to tune him out? Are you so blinded by the love of sin and self-righteousness that you can't see the beauty of what Christ has done for you? Friends, please hear this. Your only hope is to turn to God to humble and soften your heart to what God says, to listen carefully, wanting to be counseled by him, to see what the scriptures actually and truly say, rather than what you think they say or want them to say. And friends, there's a warning here for you. If you go on with your dullness and your deafness and your blindness, you run the risk of the door being shut by your unbelief. Friends, the issue is your unbelief. It's unbelief that keeps you out of heaven. It's unbelief that shakes its fist at God. It's unbelief that can just be a stubborn root in the heart, a door is emphatically shut on Israel. It's a sad day. But notice what happens next. A door may be shut on Israel, but a floodgate is emphatically opened to the Gentiles. I've heard people say, when God closes a door, he opens a window. And I don't know if that's true or not, But in this passage, a door is emphatically shut, but a floodgate is emphatically open. Notice what it says, verse 28. Therefore, (laughs) since you have demonstrated your unbelief, let it be known to you, Israel, that this salvation of God, and you can put it in parentheses, which should be yours, has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. Because of the Jews' unbelief, a paradigm shift is now taking place, friends. The focus of the gospel is now moved away from Israel and to the Gentiles. In other words, Jesus, the hope of Israel, is now emphatically the hope of the world. And by God's sovereign design, Paul is perfectly situated to mobilize ministry 
in that direction, even while he's in chains and in Rome. I'm always amazed at God's providence. Hope defended. Hope proclaimed. Hope rejected. But friends, here's the good news. Hope remains. Because Paul's legacy now instructs us. Paul, although still a prisoner, remains two whole years in Rome. He has a new ministry, primarily to the Gentiles. He has the same gospel message, Jesus and the, and the kingdom of God. He has been given a glorious freedom to proclaim the gospel with all boldness, without hindrance, we're told. And friends, there is a vindication for Paul in these two short verses that end this book. Time and time again, Paul has been accused of wrongdoing and deserving of death. And now in Rome, Paul is given freedom to teach, to train, and to mobilize ministry. Rome apparently has no problem with what Paul is preaching. There is no threat. He's without hindrance. Now I want to make a few observations about Paul that will be helpful to us as we consider how we can press on in our gospel witness. This is not just for pastors. This is not just for Christian leaders. This is for all who identify themselves as followers of Christ. First, Paul is a man of integrity. And we see that here just by the, the simple statement here where we're told he lived there two whole years at his own expense. He's in jail but somehow or another, he still has money. He doesn't want to be a burden on others. Now, I know this, this illustration here or this point has to do with money, has to do with expenses, but really, ultimately, what this has to do with is character. And we, too, should be people of integrity, people of genuine character. Are we the real deal? Do we live what we say we believe? Are we truly striving to live for Christ? Are our motives genuine? God wants us to be people of integrity. You're a child of God? Be a person of integrity. Secondly, Paul was a man who exercised hospitality. It says there he welcomed others. He welcomed all who came to him. I would say he welcomed others and he smelled like sheep. His residence became a platform for ministry. He's still in chains. But his residence now became a platform for ministry. People were coming and going. It was truly a training center where men were trained for gospel ministry. Men like Timothy and Titus and Crescens and Carpus and Ant Artemis and Tychicus and Zenus and Apollos and Erastus and Trophimus and Eubulus and Pudens and Linens, all of those names I got from the end of 2 Timothy and the book of Titus. These are, the, these are all the people that, all the men that Paul was interacting with while he's in Rome, sending them off with letters and messages and to do ministry here. And this was a place of ministry. It was Grand Central Station for ministry now to the end of the earth. 
Notice Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that has been known throughout the whole imperial guard. So he's writing from Rome here. And to all the rest, that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers have become confident in the Lord. He's talking about all these names I just mentioned. By my imprisonment are much more bold to speak the word without fear. It's a reminder for us all, friends, to exercise hospitality and to use our homes as a platform for ministry to welcome people into our homes and to live our lives for the sake of gospel ministry. Integrity, hospitality. Third, Paul continued his bold witness for the Lord. See, in verses 30 through 31, they're traditionally called Paul's first Roman imprisonment. The suggestion being that after two years of confinement, Paul was released, and although Paul was no longer traveling all over the place, preaching about Jesus, he he was training men, he was sending them out, he was encouraging both churches and pastors with many of his letters. During these two years in Rome, Paul wrote the letter to the Colossians, the letter to the Ephesian church, the letter to Philemon, the letter to the Philippians. It's widely held that during uh, that, that Paul, after his supposed release, there was a short release where he continued to be engaged in further ministry. During that time, he wrote his two pastoral letters, 1 Timothy and Titus. And then in AD 67, Paul is arrested on orders from Nero and returned to Rome for his second Roman imprisonment. And this occasion, he is placed in the dungeon. And from there, he wrote his last will and testament, also known as 2 Timothy, where Paul passes the baton to his young protege, Timothy, calling him to not be ashamed of the gospel, to entrust the gospel to faithful men, to guard the gospel, to preach the word, and to endure hardship as a good soldier. Now, I want to draw your attention to 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verses 5 through it. This is, this is almost some of the last of his writing. He's speaking to Timothy here, a heartfelt, pastoral, pleading letter. As for you, Timothy, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. And shortly after writing this letter, Paul is executed by Roman authorities. Let's bring all this to a close. 
We began our study of Acts on August 15th, 2021. And in that first sermon, I presented to you what I call the melodic line of the book. And here's what it is. The continuing acts of Jesus, who's in heaven, by his word, through the apostles, in the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is driving all the events in the book of Acts. And now as we come to the end of the book of Acts, there's a new chapter that's being written. It's Acts chapter 29. And we can summarize it this way. The continuing acts of Jesus who is in heaven by his word through the church in the power of the Holy Spirit. You see the difference there? The book of Acts is about this ministry going on through the apostles, but now Acts 29, which of course isn't in our text. Acts 29 is happening right now. And it's happening through the church. As the apostles died off, the responsibility to carry the, on the ministry was handed off to the churches. And we may all have different contexts and different ethnicities and different people groups. We have different languages and technologies and levels of education. We have different ways to travel, different kind of clothing, different kind of food. But we have the same gospel, the same Jesus, the same Holy Spirit, the same word of God, the same commission. The baton has been passed to us. It's been passed to us, friends. This is our responsibility. So we are called to not be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're called to endure hardship as a good soldier. We're called to guard and preach the gospel. We're called to entrust the gospel to faithful men. And so, since Christ in us is the hope of glory, as he says in Colossians 1 and verse 27, we proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom that we may present every man complete in Christ. This is now our mission. This is our commission with the same gospel to take it to the end of the earth. That means deal with it here, but use the gifts and resources and talents as we have to spread it to the rest of the world as we can. We can't do it all, but we do what God has given us opportunity to do. Lord, help us today to see the big picture of what's going on here. To understand, Lord, that what Paul is experiencing and what Paul accomplishes and what he is preaching, Lord, is the same mission and commission. It's the same gospel that we have been given to carry on. So, Lord, may we as a church, first of all, may we as a church see ourselves as an outpost of this wonderful spread of gospel truth. Living our lives in conformity to what Jesus Christ has revealed. 
but while at the same time having a heart and an eye and an ear toward evangelism, to share the gospel, to proclaim the gospel. And as we have opportunity, Lord, that we would not only do it locally, but we would do it globally where you have allowed us to partner with people. Help us, Lord, to be diligent, to be faithful as a church, but Lord, as individuals too, Lord. You've given us individually the responsibility to not be ashamed, the responsibility of guarding that gospel, the responsibility of of opening our mouths and testifying of, of Jesus Christ, the hope of Israel that is now our hope. It's the hope of the world. Lord, this world is longing for an answer, longing for hope. Lord, that hope is only found in you. Lord, if there's someone here today who hasn't been listening, but they're listening now, Lord, would you quicken their hearts? Would you cause belief, Lord, to to take root in their heart? They would humble themselves before you. They would submit themselves to you. They would seek to live their lives, Lord, not by their own strength, but, Lord, by the strength of the Holy Spirit who empowers them and strengthens them through your precious and revealed word. Thank you, Lord, for the book of Acts. Thank you, Lord, for Paul. But thank you most of all, Lord, that you are our hope. In your precious name, amen.